Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. This is going to be a good one. Dr. Jordan Robertson is a naturopathic doctor and an expert in all things women's health. In fact, she's the host of the Women's Health Unplugged podcast, where I was recently a guest, and our conversation was probably my favorite interview I've ever given. And I'm just so thrilled to have you here, Doc, as our podcast guest to talk all about PMS. Let's get right into it. So I have been hearing some rumors that PMS doesn't have to be a thing. Apparently, I don't need to eat all the chocolate, break out like a teenager, and start fights with my husband every month. Is this a fact or is this just straight-up fiction? Let's discuss. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really (laughs) excited to have this conversation. It's funny. As you're listing those things, I'm like, well, let's keep the chocolate and let's can the right emotions. (laughs) Let's keep the there's chocolate nothing, for sure. God, there's nothing wrong with the chocolate part as you're as you're talking there. So you're right. Like PMS is such a common experience for women. The research on it is crazy. Like probably over 80% of women, they give lots of ranges. Some studies will even say more than 80% of women at some point in their time will have symptoms that are connected with their menstrual cycle. Um And so that includes all of those symptoms of PMS. When I ask women about their PMS, they often go to the fights with their partner, right? They're like, to them, in their mind, they're like, that's what PMS is. But PMS is actually all of the physical and mental emotional symptoms that women experience that coincide with their menstrual cycle. So it includes a lot of symptoms, which is why it's 80% of women that experience it, right? We're talking about breast tenderness. We're talking about bloating. We're talking about emotional instability. We're talking about irritability. And for some women, we may be talking about other symptoms that just worsen during that time, like headaches or body pain or whatnot. So that's why it captures so many women. It's this like like experience that all women have that their symptoms are worse or that they have these unique symptoms um, around their ovulation and, and with their menstrual cycle. There's a and lot so to know. It, yeah. Like, so, okay. So <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> is it, so what is the exact, I guess it's not exact, but the timeline of when someone might say like, oh, this is because I'm, you know, PMSing, for example, like I, the other, I feel like two weeks prior to me getting my period, all of a sudden I was just like crying about so many things and it just felt overly emotional. Um, for, and is that like the time? Like, I never know when is the time we could be using it as our excuse. I guess <laughs> the truth comes out. She's like, Yeah, just it's so fine. It's like all the time. Or as a teenager, when my mom, when I first got my period, and my parents are like, Oh my gosh, well, we've got another one in the house, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the menstrual cycle has like some distinct phases. And when I say menstrual cycle, I don't just mean the like four days that women are bleeding, right? Like your menstrual cycle is actually the whole month long. 
Um, and it's divided up into phases where the hormones are different each phase and therefore the experience for women is different in each phase. So even if we were just to really simplify it and say the first half of the month, so from the first day that you get your period up until ovulation, which is approximately 14 days for most women, that's the follicular phase. That's the like confident, badass, can handle all the things, can move on less sleep, less food, resilient phase of our cycle. That's where women kind of identify that they feel their best. Um, maybe aside from like actually having their period where for some women that that particular thing is not so pleasant. However, the days in there is kind of where women feel their best. We have, we carry the least amount of water weight. So women feel their lightest and leanest during that time. It's a pretty good time of the month. At ovulation is when things change. Yeah, it's like, and then so that's then it ends. Um, and at ovulation, things really shift. So that's when women release the egg is partway through. So women who've been on a fertility journey, like they know that down to the millisecond, right? Mm -hmm. That they're ovulating. That's a massive hormone shift that happens at that time where we have big production of estrogen, big production of progesterone. And it's not all bad. For some women, that actually feels quite good. Some women at ovulation will have a higher libido or they'll feel like their skin clears up around that time of the month because estrogen is very positive for their skin. Um, but is it, a, it is a big shift. So like overnight, we go from not that water retained, feeling pretty good to a massive hormone change in a very short period of time. And then that second half of the month, right? So from day, say 14 to approximately day 28, depending on how long your cycle is, hormone levels are high. And for many women, that is going to bring on their symptoms of PMS. So it could be as long as those two weeks, uh, for some women, for some women, it may start to cluster around, you know, the, the final days before their period arrives where things feel, you know, the, the most significant or the, the heaviest, <laughs> um, like, I mean, their emotions feel the heaviest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so that's like, that is normal, right? That women would maybe experience those symptoms from like day 14 onwards, which is a lot of the month, right? Like totally. my own personal mm -hmm. mission is like, can we just not have 50% of the month get in the way of all of our lives? Right? Please imagine, just imagine. So what do we do? How do we reduce? What do we do? Yeah. How do we, so I've, again, this is me making a joke in the intro. Like I've heard rumors, but like, you know, I've heard you know, a little bit, I've heard some other interviews and people saying you can reduce these symptoms. And I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, sign me up for that. So how do we reduce the negative symptoms associated with that, you know, luteal phase going into menstruation? It's a really great question. And I, that's part of why I love doing these interviews and having this conversation is because it's actually a much bigger conversation about women's health in general, about women's role in their families, in their work, because our stress, our sleep, our nutrition, all of these things actually influence our body um, and influence the way that we experience PMS. So one of the myths that women often feel is that their hormones are the problem. Right? They what? feel like yeah, That's a myth. That is a myth. Yeah. So your hormones are not, they're not doing something they're not supposed to be doing. They are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's your body's response to that that's the problem. And that's where those symptoms come from. So, and I joke, I'll say, you know, do you ever remember ovulating when you were in your 20s? Right. And women are like, no, that wasn't a thing. Right. So if you weren't on the pill, think about 
about times when you were not on the pill and in your teens and 20s, do you remember like this horrifying event of ovulation partway through the month? No, right? That your hormones were doing the same thing then that they're doing now, right? We're, we're making the estrogen, we're making the progesterone, we're releasing the egg. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So why does it feel so bad, right? Like what happens to women as they age that makes this event now a catastrophe happening in their brain and their body? And part of it is the layering on of their stress and all the things that influence a woman's health, like the total women's health. So the current theories on PMS is actually, it's not that your hormones go up, it's that we become sensitive to it, right? Um, and I always find that word can be triggering for women because we feel like we're always being caused, called sensitive. But the reality is, is that your body actually becomes intolerant of something that it is supposed to be doing. Um, and so the more stress and the more mental health challenges women have and all of the layers of things, if we think about the modern woman, the, the more significant her PMS is going to be because now this normal biological event is perceived as a very stressful event in her body. Wow. That, that's, that's actually resonating a lot with me. I like that we can't just, cause I was about to go, okay, what, you know, do I need to do to really help with these hormones? And you're saying it's actually not the hormones. It's, you know, your life. <laughs> it's your life. Yeah. So we always think about like hormones are happening to us, right? right. That like, I'm like being victimized by my hormones, but it's actually your hormones are responding to your life, right? They are trying to keep you alive, whether we're talking insulin, whether we're talking uh, progesterone, whether like any of our hormones, their whole goal is like be alive and reproduction. And when we start to experience them as intolerable, it means that the circumstance we put our body in is actually making everything shift in a way that's creating symptoms. So it doesn't matter what your estrogen says on blood work. It doesn't matter what your progesterone says on blood work to a point. It's like your body doesn't just finds the whole thing quite stressful, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, right? Because so that's not the way it gets portrayed. Of, so it's a layering of life, basically. And so that's why you're saying as you get older and you have more of these experiences and stressors, it's the layering of that on top of what your hormones and body is already dealing with. Yes. Yeah. So when we look at like stress, trauma, even having kids, right? Like these are all risk factors for PMS, right? And the the underlying theme there is the stress piece. And it's like the more unpeaceful the woman's life and body is, the more she has PMS. The more she restricts her carbs, the more she has PMS. Mm. The more night shift she works, the more PMS she has, right? It's like Women like peace in their bodies and in their minds. And if we stray from that, now that's where we start to experience PMS as a thing in our body. Let's talk about that carb restriction thing. What's up with that? (laughs) I was like, wait, what? Can Can you just dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Because it's interesting. Like so much of the research on nutrition is really conducted on men. We don't we don't love studying women because of their menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. right? And, and research will, researchers will be like, we don't want to cloud our results with the fact that women are not the same every day. Whereas men, they're the same every day, right? Hormonally, it's Groundhog Day for them. <laughs> and for us, we, it's not. And so they, they want to eliminate variability in their studies. And so they're like, we'll just test this fasting situation on the men. Mm. Right. We'll put these type two diabetic men on the keto diet and see how much weight they lose. And often that research gets applied to a young female population who has the same goal. 
right? Women want to lose weight. So they look at a weight loss study done in type two diabetic groundhog day men and then apply it to their physiology, which doesn't work. And so all of the research on nutrition and PMS is like, if we give the women carbs, turns out they are happier. Wow. Oh my God. (laughs) We should have a t-shirt that says that. (laughs) Repeat that. Please give the women the And keto is bullshit. Keto is bullshit and carbs make you happy. I'm thinking of so many hashtags right now. Yeah. (laughs) Can we like enroll me in part two of this study where they want to test different types of bread for PMS? Like I am in on that. (laughs) Done. Sign us up right here. (laughs) But it's, and then, so, but the research is that if we give women like adequate carbohydrates during her PMS, there were some studies that were literally like, here, drink this sugary drink and let's see how you do with your mood. There are studies that are like, have as many pieces of this bread as you want and let us know how you feel. And the results are pretty significantly positive that if we help support women to have dietary, I keep using the word peace because it's kind of the best way to describe it. If we don't have restriction and we have peace, whether that's through calories or carbs or whatever other crazy thing women are choosing to restrict these days, we actually do better physiologically if we don't restrict. Oh, I love that so much. Honest to God, the the restriction, I mean, is it not true that sometimes when you restrict, then you end up kind of rebelling against that restriction and going to town, right? Mm-hmm. In a, in a in a way where you end up feeling bad about yourself after the fact, which compounds the situation even more. I'm sure you hear this all the time. So I I think Lexi and I are curious to know what are some of, because you see private clients, you and your team, you know, when you are helping clients in your naturopathic clinic, what are some of the things that you find yourself repeating to your patients all the time? Those are good questions. And so, so we talk a lot about nutrition and again, like dietary peace is kind of what we call it. Um, that that swing, you're right. Like the swing from calorie restriction to binging is, is not, uh, is not a peaceful way to live right. Nutritionally. And women often will have, you know, big swings in the way they fuel themselves. And that's coupled with them feeling, you know, like they're really good, right? Like they're doing really well Monday to Thursday when they like eat a piece of toast crust and baby bell cheese for breakfast and lunch, and then, you know, barely anything for dinner. And then, then they binge eat on the weekend, right? Where, because they are like catching up on their week or they get into the weekend and they're exhausted. Um, So we talk a lot about that. We also talk quite a bit about scheduling and like time management and compassion because women do overbook themselves. Women think that you know, they imagine themselves be, like feeling like their follicular phase self all the time, right? And we've all had that day where you like get up and you're like, oh my God, I'm a boss. Like I'm going to run for prime minister today. And then two weeks later, when you wake up and don't feel like that, right? What are, what are the things you're telling yourself? You're telling yourself you're lazy. You're telling yourself you can't do this, right? You're telling yourself all sorts of things, right? About your performance or about your confidence, when the reality is you weren't built that way. You weren't built to feel the same every day. And if we, you know, go on less food and less sleep in our follicular phase, we're setting ourselves up for PMS two weeks later. And so helping women understand how to support themselves and and plan their life, which is funny because you don't imagine that to be a conversation you have in a medical appointment to be like, tell me where your time is going. So amazing, really, like it's one of our barriers to women feeling better. 
it this is all like my mind is just blown Lexi's I can't, face. I did not literally like I didn't know I, I mean first of all the follicular phase and now I know what the follicular phase is what I'm feeling my best self and then just for women to have because I did not have I did not know this so to have that education around that being the phase and then when you do wake up and you have those times where you're getting closer to when you get your period and and outside of that follicular phase which I'm not sure what is that phase L- called the shitty phase luteal phase shitty phase luteal so it's this it's it's the phase we don't love so much but being more kind to yourself and understanding that this is just our human body like as women this is how we roll through the month some month to month like just knowing that gives me some kind of comfort and for us to be kinder to ourselves and like you said the time management and you know, upping our game of getting more sleep during the follicular phase. Like all of those things are such great pieces of information. I am just, I truly am really mind blown here. I didn't, I did not know any of this. Can so, I share something you. that I, I would love your thoughts on doc? Um, and this is something Lexi, I think might, might kind of resonate and perhaps with other listeners. So I've heard it kind of be described like the seasons. Okay. So bear with me here. <laughs> Jordan's shaking like her head. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so essentially, um, spring when like the, the trees are blooming, that's the follicular phase. Summer is ovulation when the flowers in full bloom and you've dropped your egg. Then the luteal phase is fall and the leaves are shedding. And then menstruation is winter. Right. And you want to cozy up yes. with carbs, a nice bowl of pasta yes. and some chocolate and, you know, red wine. You've heard that before. Yes. Uh, yeah. Although as you're saying it, I'm like, it's spring in Ontario and it's like fucking freezing. <laughs> <laughs> True. Right into my office this morning as it's freezing rain on me. But yes. Yeah. It's kind of that idea that like, and I like those things. It's like, you know, plants don't bloom all year, right? It's that idea that there is, there does have to be sort of this, like, you know, I've heard it be called like the fertile void, right? Like those times, like after you have like moments of creativity and creation, we actually need times where we rest and maybe do other tasks. And there's lots of cool books written about this that actually can help women start to tap into these ideas. But the, the, take-home strategy that I often will recommend that women do is honestly to just track how they feel because not everyone's month and uh, PMS experience is the same. For women that are cruising into perimenopause, their follicular phase may not be quite as rocking as it was when they were in their 20s because now they're starting to experience slight lows in their hormones. And that low time in that follicular phase may actually bring on symptoms that are closer to menopause than they like with their mood and the way they can regulate their body temperature. So when you track it though, and then you sit down with someone who can actually help you dissect what's going on hormonally, you can see how all your migraines are clustered around this time. Or you know what, your anxiety is low grade for this part of the month, but it's high grade for this part of the month. That can be the most valuable tool that women walk into their doctor's office with is a record of what's gone on for them over three cycles. Because it does help us distill out the difference between anxiety from PMS or anxiety that lives all month long, right? Which is the, there's a big difference there. Um, PMS worsens almost every underlying medical condition. So whether women have ADHD or depression or rheumatoid arthritis, 
it's heightened during that PMS phase. And so by tracking your symptoms over time, we can actually really help you distill down what your next move might be. Is it to target your underlying condition or is it to target your PMS, right? In the way that your body is responding in that second half of the month. So it can be such a powerful way for people to track it. I was going to say, I was going to tell you a funny story. I work as a team. We're all women on my team. And you're saying, Lexi, like one of the things that's so great is for women to build in that self-compassion, but it's also nice to give each other compassion for this as well. Um, two of my team members were working downstairs um, one day and one is typing away and the other was quite PMS-y. And one turns to the other and she goes, is my typing bothering you? <laughs> but like dead serious. Like this is this is the our workplace culture. Oh, oh I so, love it. Is the clocking of my nails on these keys making you crazy? Did you want me to move to another room? But like dead serious, right? Because oh that's what God. it feels like. We joke yeah. around here that we're mad at the air, right? It's like yeah. how's your day? It's one I'm mad at the air. It's one of those days. I'm mad at the sun. Um and but if we have that compassion for ourselves and compassion for each other, we can stop putting so much unrealistic expectations on each other and ourselves mm-hmm. um, because we don't feel the same way every day. Like, why do we expect each other and other women to show up the same way every day? Why are we judgy uh, if women are tired or if they can't do something when the reality is we're all going through that ebb and flow? Right. That. Yeah. It's so, so great. And I mean, working with all women, now I'm going to be more conscious of the clacking of my fingers on the computer. (laughs) Oh, that makes me happy. What a great culture you have built at your clinic. Honestly, that's, that's big. That's awesome. I I feel that immensely because it's, I feel sometimes too, if I say it to my husband, it's different. Like he's just sort of like, ugh, like probably wants to like retreat or like not want to like, you know, he's like, okay, I'm just going to stay clear, stay clear, you know? <laughs> Whereas all I want is someone to be like, it's okay. This is going to be over in a couple of days. You're doing a great job. And I'll be like, oh, thank you. He would never say that to me. He'd be like, all right, <laughs> you know, like I'm just going to go to the other room now. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's interesting. <laughs> the research on PMS is so cool. And I love like diving into this because our brain like does literally change during that time where we can't interpret the facial expressions of other humans during that time of the month. And if we show women faces in their follicular phase, they're like, that guy's happy, that guy's sad, that guy's angry. And if we show them the same faces during their luteal phase, they're like, that guy's mad at me, that guy is also (laughs) mad at me. No. That guy is also mad at me. And (laughs) which... Which is what we experience, right? But we actually have some of the data to back it up that things shift in our brain, that we actually have difficulty perceiving the facial expressions of other people, right? And we've all done that where you're like PMS, you're like, are they mad at me? Yes. Right? And like judging me for sure. (laughs) But it's happening in our brain. It's a shift. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to take a moment and ask for some personal advice, okay? We talked about this before and I think a lot of women might be um I'm just going to stop cuz it's just said internet unstable, so I'm just going to give it a second. And he can cut this out. Yeah, yeah, we can get it. Yeah. What's up with the fucking internet today? Anyways. Okay. <laughs> um so doctor I am still breastfeeding and I haven't gotten my cycle back yet. And that's just the way my body works. I know this from last time. And I remember that as soon as I stopped and I fully weaned, I got my cycle back within a month, but it was 
horrendous. Like that first cycle back after having a baby. And, you know, at this point it will have been, I don't know, like maybe even close to two years since I've had a period and the breakouts and just, it was, it was not fun. So do you have any advice for women who are trying to ease that transition from sort of weaning or even just even, and I know it's, it sucks some women still breastfeed and get their period and, you know, it's just shit luck and genetics, but what can we do to really help that sort of first period back from having a baby? Yeah. It's like a horror film, right? That <laughs> it's, a horror film. it's a horror Blood film. Bath. Yeah. Bloodbath. Um, <sighs> So are there things we can do? Maybe, right? I mean, partly just understanding it, I think is helpful. Like you said, like, it's nice to know that these things won't last forever. And so some of the reasons we experience those symptoms is because that like beautifully timed event of the menstrual cycle, right? The weeks, the days, the hormone release, when women are coming off the pill, when women are postpartum, that whole scenario is not all lining up the way it should be. And what ends up happening is you'll see some show through of some symptoms or higher levels of say testosterone versus estrogen temporarily, which will go away. But also we end up with some mismatching between what day you think you're on in your cycle and what day your uterus thinks you're on in your cycle. So this happens in perimenopause too, that things start to be more haphazardly produced. It's not like when you stop nursing, everything's just like, oh, here we go, like first menstrual cycle. The, the production and getting your brain to be re like recruiting another follicle and creating the hormones it needs doesn't happen overnight. Although for some women it does. And that, that period of time in between there, you end up with a little bit of mismatch. And that's part of the reason why we end up with such heavy periods is that first cycle may not be ovulatory. Although all the women who like get pregnant off that first month are going, yes, you can, you can ovulate <laughs> that first month. But for, the, for many women, that is not an ovulatory month. And when we don't have an ovulation, we end up with like just a miscommunication between, you know, your uterus and your hormones. And we say like, it's Sunday, but your uterus thinks it's like last Wednesday. And so you end up with a thicker lining and you may end up with greater bleeding when that period actually does come. Mm -hmm. Can we stop it? I mean, there's things that help reduce uterine bleeding, right? When it does arrive, things like ibuprofen and things like ginger, but can we stop that? That's like actually probably normal that that first period is, is pretty significant because for many many women, they'll end up with a slightly thicker uterine lining because they've had this anovulatory bleed. Mm -hmm. It should though re-regulate itself. And that is a better sign for women to track is if postpartum, their cycles don't go back to some level of normalcy. That's when you need your thyroid checked because low thyroid, which is super common postpartum, can increase bleeding with your menstrual cycle. So women whose period is never the same since childbirth, you need to have that assessed. That first period, we'll, we'll let that one go, right? Once it's over. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but if it persists, then absolutely women need to have that looked into. And it's not good enough to say, well, your body changes after pregnancy. No. No. This is not, that is not an excuse for you to have shifts that are that substantial. You know your body if things have changed remarkably since having a kid, your hormones probably need to be looked at a little deeper, or we need to look at some of the other causes like 
low thyroid that will influence your bleeding pattern uh, with your period. The acne and stuff, like I think women can probably support those areas of their hormonal health, right? There's certain foods that maybe trigger or worsen dairy and we would maybe do better without those foods during a, like that small window of time, um, you know, keeping fiber and hydration and stress and all of those other things that influence skin at a minimum, the stress at a minimum, the fiber and the hydration at a maximum. Um, <laughs> while we get through that balancing phase, because you should be able to transition back to those ovulatory phases or ovulatory cycles. And then those, that hormone function will level itself out. I remember, so I had to stop last time um, I was pumping and I stopped at 10 months um, with my first because I needed my doctor at the IVF clinic said, if you want to do another transfer, you need to have three normal cycles before you do another transfer. And I, I mean, I, I don't know, I kind of now listening to what you're saying, it makes sense, like three sort of bleeds and then we can try to do this again because he wants, he wanted there to be time for the hormones to sort of regulate and get back into that rhythm before going through it again. And, and it actually, I mean, thankfully I'm a success story and it worked, but it's interesting. And I, I'm always blown away when people are like, oh, I got pregnant by mistake three months postpartum. I know it can happen, but it's just like, it's like, wow, <laughs> you know? That's is that the number though? Like, is it, is it, cause I was going to ask the same thing, Nikki is like how many like postpartum after breastfeeding, you get your first, you know, period back. And then how many typically would you say, should it be kind of more back to normal, like pre baby? Um, and then, or how many, and then you should come and seek, you know, your advice, for example. That's a great question. So I would say like one is not a trend right? And, and I say that in all circumstances when we're talking about periods and women's health. And so women will be like, this month, I had a little bit of spotting the day before my period. What's wrong? I'm like, probably nothing, right? Like one is not a trend. And so once we start to tune women into their cycle and whatnot, it's wonderful and great. But you have to remember that these kind of one-off like little experiences, we probably can't nail down why they happened. And if it only happens one time, it's probably not pathology and probably nothing is wrong. Mm -hmm. Two in a row starts to raise some suspicion, right? Especially if we can see that your health is not the same postpartum as it was pre-pregnancy. So if women had gestational diabetes in their pregnancy or other complications, and now we're a couple cycles out and we can see, you know what, things are not the same. Um, that would maybe make me want women to be assessed a little bit earlier rather than us waiting six or 12 months and going, hey, you know that gestational diabetes you had? Yeah, it's impacting your hormones. I think I'd want to check in sooner. So if your health is not the same since before pregnancy for other reasons, mm -hmm. then I would maybe check in sooner. Most of the research when we're looking at hormones, we track for three cycles for almost everything, whether we're talking about ovulation, whether we're talking about PMS, we typically want to see three. So like one's not a trend, two is raising some suspicions, especially if we can see other things that maybe are not uh, going great health-wise, but three in a row for sure, I would say like that is a really good indication to maybe check in with someone, have some blood work done. And it could be something as simple as iron deficiency, right? So women sometimes will struggle with their iron through pregnancy. They probably struggle with their iron through breastfeeding. We always think that because they're not bleeding, that they're like catching up. 
But for lots of women, that's not the case. They may not collect iron because they're not having a period. But iron deficiency actually will increase the amount of blood loss you have with your period. I joke that if like, I feel like I want a do-over for how we put women together because yeah. iron deficiency makes you lose more blood in your no menstrual sense. cycle. Why? No sense. No. That doesn't make, make any sense. No, right? I feel like I, I could do a really good job if someone yeah, was like, you, so yeah, I, trust, I trust you. <laughs> Let me, can I, I'll share a quick story. And so I have a friend who was feeling so, so low energy and like, I think kept getting a bit of the runaround. Oh, you've got depression, go on these meds, go on these meds, whatever. And finally I said, have you had your iron tested? And her kids are like five and three, like they're not babies really anymore. And she's like, no. And so she went and, and I think her ferritin was like two. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and, and so can you just speak a little bit about the testing? Like if someone's listening to this and they're like, I feel really low energy, like it doesn't make sense since having kids. What are some of the range of, of and I know we know there's a range, but what are some of the levels they should be looking for? Yeah. And typically in prenatal blood work, like we do better now, I think at looking at iron in general for women, there was certainly a time early in my career where iron stores weren't really tested. And if women had a normal hemoglobin, we were like, ah, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Right. And it wasn't until we were like, oh, you might need a transfusion. Did we start to like (laughs) bring attention, right? (laughs) Because in pregnancy, there is a physiological change to our body and women, it's like women have some dilution of their blood. And so we expect them to look a little anemic on blood work in pregnancy that we've normalized that, right? Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that is a normal experience. Um, And then you're right, because women don't bleed after their, uh, for a little bit after delivering, we, we can sometimes have iron fall off the radar, but ferritin is a marker of your iron storage. And so it is maybe a better assessment of like, are we doing like optimally? Are we just scraping by with like normal hemoglobin, but very low level of iron storage? And the reference range is enormous. It is not stratified by gender. And so we see a reference range from five up to like 250 which we don't want to live up there, right? If we see ferritin levels up that high, especially in a woman, we start to have other ideas or or we're concerned about other things. But generally for women to feel well and to not have hair loss and all the other symptoms that come with iron deficiency, we probably want that ferritin to be above 40. So you can imagine how many women are living between five and 40 um, Mm -hmm. that are not feeling well, but are also not getting that good quality conversation about their iron levels with their practitioner, because we consider that to be a normal level of iron. Whereas I'm like, can you imagine what would happen if we weren't all anemic? Like we would fucking take over, (laughs) right? And it's funny. So here's a funny like side story. So I don't work with men very often. And I remember I had one particular patient who was really, really, really tired. And I did a bunch of lab work on this male patient and I couldn't figure it out. I'm like looking at his labs. I was like, everything looks totally fine. And I consulted with one of my colleagues because I was like, I don't know what to do. Like you work in men's health. Like, I feel like this is like working with aliens. I have no idea what to do. And he said, my colleague who is a male was like, Jordan, when women are anemic, they're going to run for prime minister. When men are anemic, they feel like they need to go to the hospital. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, he's anemic, and it like crossed my mind because I'm so used to like, and even so, it means it even happens with me that we kind of normalize like, ah, iron's okay. Mm. 
for this particular male patient, he was a little bit iron deficient and it was like a catastrophe for him. And I was so like, oh, that makes, we could take over if we weren't anemic, right? Like I watch women like running the world and everyone has a ferritin of like seven. Um, (laughs) If we actually had enough iron in our blood, like this would be a game changer. Yeah. Game changer. Oh, oh I want to go get gosh, my blood levels. Ex- that just oh. summarizes so much right there. <laughs> so you're talking thyroid. And so, okay, one more question. Cause I'm, I'm trying to like, if someone's listening into this and they're like, feel like absolute garbage postpartum, what, you know, and they're like, maybe I'm anemic. Maybe I have a thyroid issue. Like, would you say, what are some of the top tests that you would suggest someone you know, try to advocate for themselves if they're feeling like garbage. Yeah. So postpartum, you're thinking specifically? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So the thyroid is big, um, and I would include in that thyroid antibodies, which is not routinely tested where we live. Um, but the risk of Hashimoto's thyroid, which is the autoimmune version of low thyroid, actually goes up with every subsequent pregnancy. So it is a it is a reasonable thing to test in women who don't feel well since pregnancy, especially if there's a family history of low thyroid, especially if they were treated for their thyroid through their fertility care, which sometimes we treat women for their thyroid while they're going through IVF. And then we're like, okay, you're good. (laughs) Right? Like let's send you home with a newborn and never sleep. And we're not going to support your thyroid. So that, that to me is matters that the thyroid assessment is actually really, really well-rounded. Um, the, the iron thing is big. I think vitamin D testing is the third one I would say that I would really advocate for. Um, And part of that is that we're all deficient, right, in our northern hemisphere. It has a profound impact on mood, a profound impact on um, energy, metabolism, the immune system. We don't want women iron deficient, right? They're working from or vitamin D deficient, I should say. Um, and so that one would be another one that's not routinely done, but I think we, we owe it to women to have tested right now, especially with the isolation and all of the challenges women have faced over the last year. I don't really need another reason why they might suffer from postpartum depression in their life. And so I would much rather have women be screened. It is worth the 30 or 40 bucks, whatever it is to get your vitamin D tested. I really would love for you to do that one. Um, and beyond that, it's hard in that postpartum period to test hormones like estrogen and progesterone because things are all a little wacky and the results don't really change what we do with you. Um, so whether your estrogen's high or low doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, so from a testing perspective, it's I wouldn't really do much beyond that. But those are the big ones. It's like thyroid, iron, vitamin D. Oh, that's huge. Thank you. That's so helpful. So helpful. And one question um, that I had is, so we, we wanted to talk about birth control and PMS, but also as you were talking um, just about uh, your cycle and, and postpartum is, and, and the, how birth control can, you know, impact that. So if someone's on birth control, so I went on birth control for back knee when I was like 16 years old. And I stayed on it for a really long time. And I, I then switched over to an IUD, like a copper IUD. Um, but if someone's on, say, the pill, or or maybe it differs with each type of birth control, when should they be coming off to then have their own regular cycles prior to trying to have a baby? Like, you know, trying to conceive. What's kind That's of good advice around that? 
Really good questions. So technically, if women don't feel well, so this is just to backtrack, when women are on the pill, they're not ovulating. So in theory, they don't have PMS. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to take that diagnosis away from women who don't feel well while they're on the pill, but technically it's not true PMS. So there is a version of PMS that's called like progestin induced PMS, which is caused by the progesterone component of your pill. So we can still feel like shit on the pill. It's just technically not like, it's not technical PMS, um, but it's still hormone related mood changes. So we'll give you that, but you're not ovulating while you're on the pill. But so that second part of that question is how long do you have to come off the pill before things get regular? And that's a complicated question because women go on the pill for so many reasons. And often women go on the pill to mask hormonal challenges they're having in their youth that we say, don't worry about this till you're ready to have a kid, right? Don't worry about this until you're ready to start a family. So women who have PCOS, right? Or high testosterone, women who have irregular menstrual cycles for any reason, women who have heavy bleeding or endometriosis all get put on the pill and told, don't worry about this until you're ready to have a baby. And then they come off the pill, hoping that something magical has happened while they're on it and that that condition is no longer there. And that is not the case. So in the absolute perfect scenario where a woman has gone on the pill for like straight up contraception, comes off the pill, we expect it to take sort of three, six months before her period re-regulates, before her brain you know, gets back into the game and starts to ovulate again. But if a woman's gone on the pill for some other health reason, unless we address that underlying health reason, her period may not come back or it may not come back in a way that is fertility encouraging, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that's, it's why that one's a little bit more complicated. But in theory, if you've come off the pill, you know, by that 90 day mark, we should start to see some natural production of your hormones and some re-regulation of of ovulation. It's so helpful. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that you said that too, because the whole concept of it being like a masking situation. Yeah. You know, I've got a a friend who has a 22 year old daughter and she came to me and she's got really bad skin, like her skin. She's very self-conscious about her skin, similar to you, Lex. And Mm -hmm. she's like, oh, my doctor's just suggesting the pill. Um, you know, and of course then I'm, I kind of inject myself and I go, okay, well, you know, are you, would you need it for contraception? And we were close. She's just like, no, it's just for the skin. And I'm like, well, you need to go see this naturopath. (laughs) It's so true though. And that's so helpful because mine then, so I was masking back knee and yeah, it cleared up my back knee, but totally messed up my hormones. And I had a, a, a ton of like weight gain, which I'd never had in my life. And I, I was still super active. Like it was just now reflecting back, you realize how I should, you know, I wish I had gone to a naturopath and had gone a different route to try and just fix the issue at hand versus masking it with, um, uh, you know, going on the pill, uh, to, to cure my back knee, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. The pill's not wrong, right? Like when we look mm-hmm. at them, and that's the thing, it, it just shouldn't be like this blanket prescription for women. So, For those young women who are 18, 19, 20, like one, getting pregnant is maybe their number one health risk. Mm -hmm. If we think about their total health and life as a woman, having a teen pregnancy might be their greatest risk to their health period. And so I never want women to feel like they shouldn't access birth control as a means of contraception because depending on their life and depending on their circumstances, that might be the most important thing we offer that woman at that phase of her life. The other side of it is because of how 
uh, significant the mental health component around acne and unwanted hair growth and whatnot can be, for some women, the pill is a reasonable solution for those things. I don't think it should be the only thing we do with them, right? We shouldn't say, here's the pill, drink as much milk as you want, right? Or here's the pill, the rest of your health doesn't matter. However, for lots of women, when their mental health is at risk when it comes to their acne or their hair growth or even unwanted hair loss on their head, putting them on the pill or on an androgen suppressing medication that may actually be the best option for them in the short term, right? Right. But I just don't want women to think that that's the only answer. And I don't want them to think that in 10 years when they're ready to have a kid that those things are gone, because they're not, they're just returned off. Mm. Yeah. I hear this so much, right? As someone who went through IVF to conceive with my husband, so many people I met through that were like, why did I bother taking the pill all those years? And now I'm trying to have a baby in my thirties and I can't, you know, like, so, I mean, that's just, it was like a constant conversation that I would have with people. Yeah. That's a big one. Okay. I have a I have one more question here. Um, and this is something that I learned about because a close girlfriend of mine also is suffering from it. Um, it's called PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So essentially it's similar to PMS, but like severe irritability, depression, anxiety, like the week or two before her period starts. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that I kind of describe PMDD, and it's it's like you said, it's not really PMS, but the best way to kind of like articulate it um, to the general public is that it's it's like the more psychiatric version of of PMS. So, so women often have some physical symptoms that go along with their experience, but the mental health symptoms are really dramatic for them. Um, it's as significant or more significant than major depressive disorder. There's a very high risk of suicide in women who've been diagnosed with PMDD. So we need to treat it a little bit more seriously and, and be mindful about that as practitioners um, and as family members, right? That labeling something as just PMS may not be serving that woman because if she does classify or qualify as having PMDD, her health risks for suicide are really high. So we screen for that often in our office because we're working with women all the time on their mood and their mental health. Sometimes women will be surprised that we're even going there and asking them about their, you know, their own individual risk um, as far as self-harm goes. But it is different. So the sort of chemical experience that women with PMDD have in their brain is that progesterone, which is the hormone that's released at ovulation, is essentially toxic in their brain, right? It actually influences other neurosteroids and neurochemicals that shift her ability to feel joy. It shifts her mood in a way that it's like a it's like a Jekyll Hyde, like an absolute like switch in her brain. It's difficult to diagnose PMDD, partly because every other mental illness is worsened during PMS, right? So if women have depression in their, in their follicular phase and worse depression in their luteal phase, that is not PMDD, right? Women with PMDD have that very specific experience of their follicular phase is okay, right? Like they, they feel okay part of the month. It's the second half of the month where they feel literally like the switch is flipped and their brain is sick um, after ovulation. 
And the treatment strategies need to be different for those women. It's often sort of Russian roulette to figure out which mental health medication can support those women. Um, There are some like more natural interventions that can support women through that phase, but it really does need this like combined approach. Um, it's hard for us to get women to like completely feel a hundred percent without adding in a little bit of medication to support her during some of those windows of time. So it's, it is a a way more serious condition for sure. And I do think like the knowledge around it has increased, whereas, you know, five or six years ago, that was, this was not something that we talked about a lot with women was PMDD or wasn't a acronym that women were particularly, um, familiar with. Whereas now I'll have women come to me and be like, I've done the questionnaire. Like, I'm pretty sure this is what's going on with me. Wow. So that's not necessarily a life thing where we were talking earlier about PMS saying, you know, PMS is more of your body reacting to these hormones. And when you feel unsupported and life is stressful, you're more likely to have PMS. You're saying PMDD is almost more of like an allergy to progesterone in the brain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we know there are triggers and risk factors. So women who've had trauma, women who've had sexual abuse, these are all things that increase or heighten their risk for PMDD. Women who've had postpartum depression are at an increased risk of later being diagnosed with PMDD. And we don't quite understand it yet. And I've read about this like at length. At the moment, we kind of think that a woman's stress response and her hormones become almost married in a way that were either never intended or we never wanted. And so women who experience trauma or sexual abuse during her developing years, right? Like shortly after puberty, we see this, like I, can't, I always call it the word marriage, although maybe that's not the right word because it's a bad marriage, uh, a marriage between her female hormones and her stress response. And she now experiences her shifts in her menstrual cycle, almost like that repeated trauma in her brain. And it elicits all of the negative um, feelings and emotions in her brain. So yeah, it is different. It's not like we can say, do some meditation, go to the spa. Like that's, that is not an appropriate treatment, which is why I want women to know about the severity and that suicide risk because pursuing, you know, Instagram treatment of your PMDD is maybe not an appropriate way to be supported. Um, I, I want women to seek better care for that. I love that you said Instagram. So this is a conversation we had when I was a guest on your podcast, which Lexi, let me fill you in. So we were, we were joking about how a lot of people try to kind of diagnose themselves and fix themselves by just doing Instagram posts right? So they're like, I'm going to fix my diastasis. I'm going to do this one video that Nikki posted. And I'm like, it's going to take more than just this one video that I posted. (laughs) Same thing with, you know, Dr. Jordan, right? So that's kind of just wanted to clarify what the heck does she mean about Instagram (laughs) treatment? That's what she's talking about. I love it. It's so true too. So true. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's, there's just so much. Yeah. This has been so, so helpful. And is there anything else that you want to leave you know, common ask question or anything else you want to leave our listeners with around PMS specifically? I think what I want women to know about PMS is that it's worth treating. I think that that's, you know, there's, there's certain areas of women's health. And I'm sure Nikki experienced this talking to women about pelvic floor and vaginal health. Like there are certain things in women's health that women don't feel like are worth it to get support for. And PMS is one of them. It's one of these things that women just sort of live with. Um, and then the, the self-talk that they have about themselves because of their PMS also becomes this obstacle to cure, right? Like they think of themselves as the mad mom, 
right? Like, and they know that they want different for themselves and different for their family, but no one's ever made them feel like they could be part of that conversation or that their actions would have any impact or that this was something that they could control, right? And we think about like that whole fertility population, like we've never met a group of more motivated people than women who are trying to have a baby, right? Like they would jump on their head and wear a purple turtleneck. Like they would do whatever you said, Yep. try and have a baby. And then there are other aspects of women's health where women are like, I guess this is how it is. The women in my family are moody, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, this is not okay. And I always think like, imagine what would happen if we all felt well all the time, right? Yeah. Or if we designed our work lives to move with how we felt rather than us feeling like we were white knuckling it through half the month, like, oh God, I got to give this terrible presentation and I'm in my luteal phase. Like how wonderful the world would be if it was like, I'm going to schedule this during my follicular phase when I'm going to be like super badass. And then next week, right, I'm going to read alone in my office and no one's going to bother me. Um, So I want women to know that it's possible for them to feel better. I think that that's a a piece that we just kind of glaze over, that it's not something that they have to live with. It's not something they're stuck with. And it's not happening to them, right? And and that's not, I'm not saying that in a blamey way, like look at, you know, shame on you for overbooking yourself. I'm saying shame on society for making women feel like they should overbook themselves, but you could control it, right? Like we could get you to a place where we reprioritized your health and actually had you feel more well. And then you can do anything you want, right? If you just felt better. I think it's the big, like the stereotype that we put on ourselves around PMS and that it's just like, yep, this is just how it is like this time of the month. So I love that so much. And that's what my takeaway literally is like book all of your boss needing like presentation, whatever it is during your follicular phase, like there we go (laughs) and I'll be my best self. And then really just, you know, I think we need to be more, like you said, compassionate to ourselves and other women around us, (laughs) especially when they're in their Luneal phase. Luteal. <laughs> <laughs> shitty phase. I knew I was too, too loud phase. No clicky clack. No, the clicking phase. And where can um, everyone find you? And especially if, if someone wants to come see you um, as their natural path. Yeah, Instagram's a great place to hang out. Um, I really like Instagram. Um, there's lots of great sharing there. Uh, so it's at Dr. Jordan ND. So Dr. Jordan ND. Um, and there's the links to my podcast there as well, where we do these kind of like deep dives on health conditions for women. Lots of talk about hormones, perimenopause, menopause, etc. Um, and so the links to all of that are there. But my podcast is Women's Health Unplugged. The goal of the podcast is really to help women. Have have the language to be able to advocate for themselves wherever they are. I know I can't work with every woman one-on-one. And so I want you to have the tools to walk confidently into your doctor's office to ask for the things you need or to know where to find help if you can't get it from the practitioners you currently work with. Um, we are clinical practices in Burlington, uh, Ontario, but we service women virtually all over Ontario. I have an entire team of female doctors who work with women on an entire spectrum of health whether it's from fertility, preconception, prenatal, menopause, 
uh, breast cancer recovery, like everything from that sort of like women's health journey. We have um, one women woman who's like the expert um, in all of those areas serving our women at the clinic. So whatever women's needs are, we can support them through kind of all stages of life. Um, and that can either be found through my Instagram or at clarityhealthburlington.ca, or you can just Google my name. There is a male soccer player in the UK whose name is also Jordan Robertson. <laughs> it's not me. I'm not a soccer player, so don't be confused. Um, but if you just Google my name, then you will find it. And we'll put it in the show um, notes too. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been uh, so informative. We Thanks. really appreciate it. It's so fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.